Full Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Up 1,000 points, down 1,100 points, rally into the close, panic into the close, conferences are canceled, cruise ships are quarantined, airports are empty, bond yields are collapsing, and that emergency interest rate cut. Markets in the economy meet the global coronavirus crisis. Do stay with us. Last call, Thursday, March 12th at the University of Richmond's Modlin Center, Full Disclosure's 2020 election show featuring NPR's Aisha Roscoe, Amy Walter, The Takeaway and PBS NewsHour, and our very own Ben Pavier, VPM News. We still have some tickets at vpm.org slash events. Full Disclosure's 2024 sites, Thursday, March 12th. Join us. Joining me from NPR in New York is Lauren Young, money editor at Reuters, one of the most connected people I know in all of personal finance dumb. Uh, we work together at Business Week and Smart Money, the late great magazine of the Wall Street Journal. How are you? Smart Money. I'm good, Robin Farzad. How are you? I mean, how are you, really, in today's crazy world? You know, we have now traversed 20 years of markets together. And um, I don't believe in any period within that. I mean, bull markets, the financial meltdown, Enron, WorldCom, everything. And this gets into a bit of esoterica, but never have you and I seen the U.S. 10-year Treasury yield at 0.93% where it is right now. And to explain for our listeners, I mean, this is something that back in the early 1980s, that yield was 15.84%. Within this 52-week period, uh, the government, Uncle Sam, would still pay you about 2.7% for your money over 10 years. Now you're getting less than 1% for your money. What is that telling us? For our listeners who don't quite understand the inverse relationship, what is this telling us? Mass hysteria. That's what it's telling us. It's, it is remarkable. And, and Robin, he kind of encapsulates a relationship of two decades, but we really have been together through everything. And when the market crashed in 2008, we were literally side by side. And this it, this feels really different, and I'm and I think it's because it's so wide, it's so global. We have never experienced. We've had these exogenous shocks in different countries, in Russia and Thailand, wherever. But this is a global thing that is happening, and it we don't really know where it's going. And obviously, I'm talking about the coronavirus. In case we haven't even mentioned it yet, and it's been a couple minutes already. So yeah, on that coronavirus is is is. You know, you suddenly look at the statistics and everything. Things have come to a standstill. Airlines, um, you know, I believe the CEO of Southwest was on CNBC saying that this feels like a kind of a 9-11 type hit. You have the conference business grounding to a halt. People talking about bolting on South by Southwest. Uh, You know, the Ulta Music Festival in Miami. Airlines are suddenly in crisis mode. They're giving back uh, things that they took in, in a flush period. You know, don't worry about baggage fees. Don't worry about cancellation fees. Uh, businesses are terrified about their supply chain in China when entire cities have been shut down and you can't get anything. And not even to mention South Korea, Italy, which is still enormous to Europe's economy. Um, And what's surreal about all of this is we are just a couple of weeks removed from an all-time high stock market in the United States, from an economy that's still banging before any of this happened. We were at an all-time low uh, in unemployment. And so this is truly what is called an exogenous shock. What I'm waiting for, Robin, you know, we've, we do, we've seen schools shutting down in across Asia and across Europe, here in New York City, which is where I am. I think that 
things are really going to get real if the New York City schools shut down. I think that to everyone here, and this is, you know, we have these views, um, unfortunately, U.S.-centric. Ever, It's very led by, at least in the markets, by what's happening in New York and certainly in Europe, but was until recently what was happening in London. But I think that if that does happen, it's going to feel super, super real. Tell me about this. You still live in Brooklyn, correct? Yes. You, Robin, just for everyone who's listening, gives me a lot of crap about living in Brooklyn. Well, it's back in my—I nice was an Upper West Sider. I mean, it was worthwhile to go to Brooklyn, at the very least, for Peter Luger Steakhouse and otherwise and pizza. to see Lauren. And pizza. But, pizza. You know, to get serious, um, this morning you took the subway from Brooklyn to Times Square where Reuters is? Correct. I, one guy right across from me was wearing a mask. I very judiciously sat not close to anybody else. I go in a little bit later than everybody. Robin knows my uh, habits. I like to roll in a little bit later. But thankfully, I really do feel like you're not jam-packed with everybody if you come in a little bit later. So I don't understand the mood there. Who wants to be in a crowded subway? I mean, suddenly the cruise industry is at a standstill. Nobody wants to be in packed quarters, whether or not anybody's wearing a mask. How does a city like this kind of keep its its head together? It... it <laughs> It's a great question. And I think people have very different worldviews, just like, you know, believing in God or not believing in God, believing, you know, day by day you do it. And certainly to get up and live in a city like New York in a densely packed metropolitan area, you already coming, you know, to the table with um, a worldview that, you know, you can get along with other people on a regular basis. But I have to say I was in a in a very large meeting this morning with with a probably a couple hundred people in a conference room and it, it in, in, in one of our big big conference rooms and I was thinking to myself is this the last time I'm going to be in a room with this many people um, just because it does feel like things are starting to grind to a halt and maybe I'm being doomsday today because I've been reading too many headlines watching too many tweets and by the way Robin we've been having this conversation we haven't even mentioned the U.S. election because really yesterday was election uh, recap and today it's all coronavirus, mm. all coronavirus. And that whiplashing volatility, when you see something on uh, to the effect of, and you're not even mentioning last week, market down 700 points one day, the next day up 800 points, down 1,000 points, up 1,000 points, whiplashing back and forth. The last time we saw anything like this was in 2011, I believe, August of 2011, the uh, uh, late summer of 2011, when there was this concern about the, the new level of contagion in Europe. They called them the pigs, uh, Portugal, Italy, Ireland, Greece, and Spain. And thankfully, that was short-lived and the economy, the global economy would come and recover. Prior to that, it was the 2008-2009 freefall meltdown where, you know, you and I remember this at Business Week covering the markets where just every day it became the market falling five, 600 points. There was this feeling of, of weightlessness. There's nothing you can do about it. On and around March 9th, 2009, I'll never forget, a bunch of people in the art department at Business Week magazine a bunch of other staffers and editors came and tapped on the window by my cubicle and and asked me if they should start liquidating their 401ks. Uh, one person very close to us said, you don't understand this. We're all going to be eating cat food in a year. My parents survived the depression. And you and I, you know, in a, in a kind of reading all the literature, reading Warren Buffett, Jack Bogle, everybody else says that when things like that happen, it's supposed to be a contraindicator for you to go in and buy. 
I don't disagree with you, and I don't think it's a bad time to buy. It, look, it, there are different sectors, and there are different things happening, and there are different motivations for for buying things. You and I are, you know, it sounds so didactic, but we're in it for the long haul. We're still relatively young. But I think for people who are on the cusp of retirement right now, it is a scary moment. Uh, For people who have to take required minimum distributions this year in the U.S. where you have to liquidate part of your retirement portfolio as as, – Required by U.S. law, it's it's really scary because no one wants to be selling into into a market like this. You know, Lauren. Again, to go back to the ten-year Treasury note yield, that's supposed to be uh, a sign of uh, you know it's a benchmark thing. It's mostly quoted uh, on the news. The benchmark ten-year Treasury yield on Thursday fell to an all-time low. I mean, to put that in context, an all-time low. We had not seen that on September 11th. We had not seen it in the, the worst, the teeth of, of, of Lehman Brothers, of everything falling apart on Wall Street at a time of war. Again, to remind you, we are just two or three weeks removed from an all-time high on the market. And for a global kind of panic indicator of people piling in to the safety of 10-year Treasury, you know, the United States being the ultimate readout of safety, that is a, that is a I mean, it, it, it's a bit of a terrifying indicator. It is terrifying. It also is, for some people, a really good opportunity to refinance your mortgage right now, uh, particularly if you have an interest rate over 4% or 3.5%. You should be, you know, take advantage of these things, people, because they may not may not happen again. Um, it is it is terrifying, Robin. I will not disagree with you. And I, I think what's scary about it is we had the surprise rate cut in the U.S. Um, Fed, Fed officials clearly concerned about what's happening with the U.S. economy. And I... I I've said it um, to many people, and I will say it here now. I do think we are headed for a global recession only because of all the slowdown um, in so much activity that's so important to the world's economic growth. So it's not surprising to me. Um, It is scary, for sure. Um, do I think that it's gloom and doom and that it, we are the days you know are coming of Armageddon? No. Um, but we do need to get a handle on what what is happening with the coronavirus. Um, I know that every you know uh, pharmaceutical company is out there right now trying to figure out a way to treat it, vaccination, whatever it is. and and I think you know this, everyone knows this. you can't find a bottled purell anywhere uh, in a pharmacy right now in the US or a Costco or any other grocery store. So there's, it's also really interesting to me, the preppers, the people who have gone out and stockpiled canned goods. Um, I've not done that yet. Have you? No, but I I would love to shut off my phone and order Domino's and fire up the Netflix. I tweeted something to this effect today, but those stocks, they're not exactly thriving. Everything is being taken out and shot. And it's very hard for anybody to look at an analogous period to this because, Lauren, after all, you know, you and I and, and, and the financial press have always used contagion metaphorically. If you think about uh, the emerging markets in 1997 and Russia in 1998 and rolling contagions, no, this is potentially literal contagion. Contagion. Right? It is. It's contagion. Yeah, it is. And, it we, is, had a, and we had a taste of it with SARS in 2003, but that wasn't, that the wasn't same. nearly as systemic as this was. Not the same. It's, you know, what's scary is how immediate it is, too. Um, the cases that, that have been reported in New York City, for example, I'm only one step removed from the person in Westchester. I know people who who, who know that gentleman. So it's very, very scary. Uh, and also just because we don't know a lot about the coronavirus, it's, it's mysterious. It's uh, unfortunately seems to be more dire in men um, of, of a certain age, middle-aged men. And elderly people, but we just don't really know. We don't 
have a good beat on this. And I think that's what's so scary is not really understanding it. Does it feel like a horror movie to you, Robin? Well, it's it's strange in that it's so whiplashing. One day you get an enormous rally. Oh, the Federal Reserve is in emergency rate cutting mode. You never see an economy at full employment and a market near a record and the Federal Reserve coming in and cutting a half a point at a time. And that's and what's terrifying. I agree so with that you. They that, must, that's the they encapsulation of something. what's scary. And that was, that was kind of the indication. It reminds me of the time when... Um, you had a, an emergency bailout of uh, Bear Stearns or Bear Stearns was you know, the take under before any of this stuff happened made you wonder if there was a lot worse in the system that we're not hearing Which about. Which I believe was also in March, wasn't it? Wasn't That's right. That emerg- and it was also, in- also the opacity of, of, of uh, economies like such as Iran and China where we're not necessarily getting the level of transparency we want. And even our government here in the FDA and uh, – you know, the czar here, the, the CDC and everybody giving kind of cross currents of information and stuff flying over Twitter and suddenly Washington state declaring a state of emergency and someone in California, California doing it. It is a, a real time demonstration of, you know, back in the day, you'd have to have the TV on watching CNBC or watching the news to do it. Now you have smartphones tweeting at you, updating this by the second. Right. And you know what? I've also been thinking about this too, Robin. I don't know where your head is at, but it's interesting how Russia is not part of the conversation yet, really. And I'm just waiting for for that to... I'm just so curious what, you know, where Vladimir Putin stands on this right now and what he's thinking and all of the dark web stuff that's out there. But uh, I'm just waiting for Russia to be part of this story and and still remains on the sidelines. Well, I have a broader question, Lauren. Uh, Thinking back to, you know, when I first started working with you in the year 2000, before anything happened, before the dot-com crash, before 9-11, you had interest rates at somewhere like 5 or 6%. Even before this subprime crisis, interest rates peaked. The Fed's main rate was somewhere at five and a quarter percent. And one of the difficulties was we thought that as this economy was thriving, the Fed was going to be able to take up rates because, after all, you need to have arrows in the quiver. Rates have to be positive. There has to be a level for you to, to, to go in and, and kind of stimulate the market. But we find ourselves in this conundrum again with, after a, a prolonged period of, of unnaturally low rates, if you look at the majority of years between 2000 and the present have had emergency interest rate policy, on top of the other things that the Federal Reserve had to do, trillions of stimulus coming out of, of uh, subprime, um, I, I really wonder about how this general, generationally is going to affect savers and people who've had to rely on fixed income and I bonds I just keep thinking about portfolio. Japan, Robin. I keep thinking about Japan, a deflationary environment for decades. And people literally, there's no yield, no place to put money, putting it in their mattresses. I, I don't know if they really are. But not having any incentive to save and how scary that is um, to not be able to find a return on your investment is – for cat, you know, we haven't had cash has basically delivered nothing for a long time now. But it's sad that I miss higher interest rates. I mean, you there's some there's a lot to be said for low interest rates because it certainly makes the the price of borrowing very very attractive. But you want to be rewarded for saving too, and um, we're just. It, it's not there. And I, do you worry about deflation? Well, that's the, that's the more, you know, we used to talk about moral hazard back in the day. Remember Alan Greenspan's briefcase and what if he bails out this bubble and what if he comes and in? His and you tie. always knew that his no tie matter, and his briefcase. No matter how much risk taking you took, there was going to be what was called the Greenspan put. And nobody's been talking about moral hazard um, since the what Powell happened in 2008 put? I haven't heard I haven't heard of the Powell put yet. Have you? No. But, uh, you know, I think it, it used to be that the paradox coming out of this is the people who behave themselves, who didn't take out subprime, 
liar loans, who didn't uh, speculate on private equity or real estate and everything, coming out of 2008, 2009, if anything, they were punished with a, a long period of nil interest rates. So you know, the market was, the Fed was forcing you to go out and take risk for return. And that has worked in spades until just a few weeks ago. How do you feel about cyber currency in, in this time? I don't know what to feel about it. I mean, I, I, I you know, it, it had its peak. It shot up. I get a lot of people from Miami and Boca Raton wanting to talk to me about it, which worries me. <laughs> but, you know, you have a point. There's a fiat currency and used to be backed by gold. And now there is less and less faith that um, the dollar or the treasury reflects the underlying strength of the economy. There are a lot of distortions. There's a Federal Reserve coming in. There's so interna international investors, even if we want our rates to go up, our you know our our ten year treasury, anytime something goes wrong, they overwhelmingly pile into our treasury debt. So I think I've told you the story, Robin, but I'm just going to briefly tell it to you that in 2008, in the summer, in August of 2008, I took the Business Week interns to the Federal Reserve in New York City on a tour. And we went down to the Gold Vault, which is very unusual. You don't normally get to go visit the Gold Vault. And when we were down there, our guide said, oh, I've never seen anything like this. All of this gold was being moved from one, one literally one little cage to another cage. And there was a belt and there were people with shoes that were protective. And all this gold was being moved around. And she said, wow, I've never seen this before. And it was literally the beginning of the financial crisis and something was going on. I would love to be in the gold wall right now. I would love to see what is going on down there, which is, you know, many stories below the bedrock of Manhattan. But I'm, I think I'm so curious what's going on in the minds of, of people who are at the helm of different financial institutions right now. I would love to get inside their head and see what, what they're thinking and, and how they're preparing for it. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Lauren Young, money editor at Reuters. She joins us from NPR in New York. Talk to me about gold specifically. You know, the Iranian relatives or if you're, you're, you're an Indian American and you have Indian relatives talking to you, there always seems to be this fetish with gold that it is that ultimate, you know, if there's blood on the streets that you want right. to be in gold. But what does gold mean? What does gold do for you in a period of coronavirus? If you have commodities collapsing in this environment, oil, uh, foodstuffs. Uh, suddenly, demand has kind of fallen off a cliff for copper and these other things. So what good is it to, to you know, fetishize about gold or platinum or silver? People love something tangible, especially since so much of the the value of the market is really on paper. I mean, we talked about getting reaching uh, new highs earlier this year. and But it's all paper money. I actually looked at my retirement account, Robin, when the market hit, the, the day it hit a high. And I was feeling pretty, pretty good, to quote my friend Larry David. Um, but it's not it's not a thing. It's not anything I can touch. It's not anything I can hold. And gold is that, or can be, or is perceived to be. And so it, there's always, just like real estate, people like to know that they have an asset that is a, is something real. Um, I feel I've I've never been a gold investor. I feel really I've kind of thought people who are gold investors I'm probably going to get hate mail for this are a little wacky. Um, but you know I I do believe in the diversification for sure, and I think it can be part of a portfolio. What What do you think about gold? I'm skeptical of gold. I think it's very difficult for an individual investor. I mean, if you want to buy actual, you know. Bricks of oh, yeah. gold or, or gold Krugerrands or whatever they are, you have to consider storage costs. You have to consider uh, protection costs, security costs. The ETFs, as you know, don't track the price of gold purely. You have to buy companies, maybe miners that track. I think it's a fool's errand. And and I, I kind of have this question with 
other people out there that are already sufficiently exposed to gold by holding an index fund as the S&P 500 or um, a smaller mid-cap index or even an emerging markets fund or exposure to South Africa exposed you to gold. So aside from the lectures I get from the inevitable Iranian relatives and uncles that I didn't even know I ever had, uh, I'm skeptical about gold. So have, financially, what are you doing right now? Have you done anything? Well, who's interviewing who here? Exactly. I have to tell you this. One thing that's been really interesting to me is the lost decade for international stocks. You know, we had the lost decade for the United States between 2000 and 2010 uh, because you're coming off this enormous tech bubble period of, of enormous valuations. And in that decade, that's when international emerging markets- It was really emerging markets. And yes. others had their revenge. But then from 2010 to the present, it was all the United States all over again. And there's been second thinking both about emerging markets and value and whatnot. And I'm worried now that China, which is truly the engine of emerging market growth, I mean, where would Peru be without China? Where would Argentina? Where would some of these you know, satellite economies, the Philippines- Korea. Uh, you know, places in Africa be without the, the enormous uh, spending power of China. China is nearing a shutdown. And what is that going to do to the emerging market world? Are you going to get back to metaphorical contagion, something like we haven't seen since 1997? Maybe. Um, what's amazing to me, and I don't know about you, is I didn't know where Wuhan was on a, on a map. Did you look? Did you know where it was? And did you I've heard of the Hubei province because we had Chef Peter Cheng on this show, but I did not know where Wuhan was. And what's amazing to me about China too, and I've heard you know heard people say this before, there's so many big cities that I don't know what the name of. I don't, I just I'm so. A, a glimpse into the Chinese economy and the geography. Um, I'm not saying that we're all getting, you know, history lessons right here and now, but I do think there's an awareness that there wasn't before. Um, it's, to me, very interesting. And just think, you know, weeks ago we were having protests in Hong Kong and there all of these things that have all kind of ground to a halt. But the, the, the issues and the problems aren't going to go away. So they'll still be there. But I do hope, you know, when we get on the other side of this and please let it be soon, that there will be a different understanding of, of China and what it means and what it is and and, um, and where it's going. Uh, that's that's my optimistic view. Well, of Lauren, it. the paradox again is that, um, you know, since China's ascent into the World Trade Organization nearly 20 years ago, it's been an enormous lift. Uh, you know, you talk about the, the, the China dividend that you get as a person at Walmart or what a DVD player costs before all this versus what it costs now. It's become the manufacturing hub of the world. There are entire cities dedicated to toys and lamps and wire fixtures. You talk about these, these uh, enormous populations of 10 million plus. Uh, but what terrifies me, and I've been speaking to many people about it since the coronavirus news broke, is that plausibly you had a transaction of a few yuan at a wet market in Wuhan, if you believe the story, and it hasn't been fully written yet, that somebody bought tainted meat, maybe bush meat tainted it, maybe it was pangolin, maybe it was something else in the Wuhan wet market, and then that proceeded to end up in, in uh, kind of, you know, Wuhan and much of the Hubei province getting shut down, uh, much of the Chinese economy kind of getting voluntarily shut down, but nevertheless, Somebody then sprung that into Iran, into the uh, religious epicenter, Qom, the capital, and a bunch of clerics got sick. I think a deputy health minister got sick. Next, you start hearing about it all across South Korea. 
and Italy. And Italy. long story short is about $15 trillion of, of hit to the economy so far, nominally, if you take in market cap losses, all because of one tainted meat transaction of maybe five bucks. Which is, I, I keep saying it sounds like a horror movie to me. I don't, I, there's nothing else I can, in, there's the Stephen King movie that was starring Molly Ringwald that was based on the Was it The Stand? Books. Yes. And it, I just think about walking through, I believe it was the Lincoln Tunnel, which is the main lifeline for New York City, one of the main ones to get to New Jersey. And, you know, it's like zombie apocalypse. And I keep thinking, are we going to be there? I'm sorry. I don't mean to be doomsday. I want it to be positive. One and by the, the way, she could play me in the movie if, if, <laughs> if, if we need One of the interesting things that happens, and it sounds mercenary, but you have uh, Kroger and other retailers, the Wall Street Journal reports, seeing higher sales of staples. The coronavirus epidemic is driving up orders of sanitizers, canned food, and nuts. So here you have Kroger on a day that the market is down 1,000 points. Kroger is up 7%, said it is selling more staple goods as consumers stockpile in preparation for a wider coronavirus outbreak in the U.S., but and how that is the long biggest are they going to be able to stock those shelves? Right. I mean, you go to Trader Joe's uh, anywhere on the island of Manhattan, and it looks like, you know, a tornado came through it. So although they're doing a really good job of restocking it every day, but at the end of the day, it looks the shelves are bare. And, you know, there's only a finite amount of time before the suppliers are not going to be able to supply the stuff. For I mean, I'm wondering when, when will the vegetables stop coming? When will the milk stop coming? Um, the eggs. So all of the things that we count on, uh, if 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 transactions cannot happen. And again, I apologize for being doomsday. You caught me at a doomsday moment. But it, the, the economic impact of that is so enormous, Robin. And we both know, by the way, and for anyone who's listening, the grocery business is the lowest margin business out there. It is sure. so transactional and really hard to make money, which is why it's been a very tough and challenging business for so many companies. Just to report for everybody, I was at Starbucks this morning with my uh, Yeti cup you know, the big mug. Yep. And I go in there and I ask for a cold brew uh, and I get the cup discount of 10 cents every day. It's nice. It keeps the, the cold brew cold for 24 hours. And they looked at me. They gave me the look of death like, no, can't touch don't, this. Don't bring that in here. Right, I'll give you the cup discount, this. but we are uh, decidedly hands off. Not only that, the place was empty. I'm um, going to a big event tonight and they, I got an email that it's a no shaking hands policy. We can wave at each other. Wow. So what is what is Wall Street saying about this? Because our, our temptation is to go to people like Tobias Lefkovich and others, some of the, the leading voices of the sell side or economists. But truth be told, they can't possibly know how this plays out. If there isn't even unanimity you know, between um, you know, the health czar in the United States and the CDC and the World Health Organization, and if you don't know if you can believe what's coming out of state officials in Washington state outside of Kirkland or Tehran. What they're saying is keep calm. But I think there's a, you know, that's their job. It's not, it's, I'm skeptical, I have to say, because no one really knows anything, Robin. It's, um, it's, it's, it's the unknown. And the unknown is, you know, of course, there's opportunity unknown. We know that. But, um, you know, if you're on the right side of it, 10 years from now, the person who was the genius who figured out a way to make money from all of this, but, um, at, you know, at what cost. Uh, but I, I'm I'm really I get all these reports from Wall Street. I'm not even opening them. I hate to tell you, I'm just not interested. 
And the other thing is, is that this has been so pent up, uh, the market had been exuberant. What's, what's, you know, in the parlance, they call it a melt up. The market has been going up inexorably for several years in a kind of a risk on environment. Tech has been doing incredibly well. Suddenly you have companies like Apple worth well over a trillion dollars. It was just, you know, buy it. Microsoft. Buy it, Microsoft, all these other companies. And there was nothing, uh, suddenly memories became short term because the last time we experienced anything like this, was briefly in 2011 when you saw, what is it, a bear market of 20%. And, and certainly very few people remember getting cut in half their portfolios in 2008 and 2009. I think for corporations, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about investing, but there's also just the day-to-day transactions of doing business. And, um, and, how, and you know, we have contingency plans and off, offshore data centers and all these things, but none of it's really ever been tested before. And I'm just so curious what's going to happen if everybody, for, I was talking to my husband about this, if everybody dials into the VPN um, at the same time, will it work? You know, we just don't, we don't know. There's so much that we don't know. There's no crystal ball for a coronavirus, Robin. Um, I think that maybe some of it is overblown and there's too much hysteria, as I said at the top of the show, but I, I don't, I don't know. Just another feel... indicator of, by way of uh, Charlie Bellello on Wall Street. He is at, uh, was it Compound Capital Advisors? Yes. He posted a very interesting stat today. In October of 2008, kind of you know ground zero for the meltdown on Wall Street, United States investment-grade bonds, quality companies, yielded more than 9%. Their yield today is down to 2.38%. Wow. all-time I... low. Again, an all-time low, and that's another flight for safety. You and I'm assuming that, that they're—I mean—that they're the credit risk is is pretty low. Um, yeah, explain this for people. So these are companies. I mean, you think about the the Coca Colas, the J and Js, the uh, um, you know apples of the world. That they're good for the money. They're not as good for the money as Uncle Sam is, who can keep printing and has the full faith and credit of of the economy and the treasury. But after you've exhausted everything in say a treasury, you would next look to municipalities or to uh, investment grade credit. In this case, it's striking to me that 2008, which palpably to me felt like a lot more panic, something that yielded 9% then in that environment is now yielding 2.38%, which has me worried, Lauren, about um, people seeking out yield and people in this kind of this reflexive moment and this panic uh, looking for for places of safety that might get them hit when and if this all subsides. And for people who are older who are counting on 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 yield, I was literally just in Florida last week with my uh, retired parents watching Jim Cramer um, put together his list. And it was all companies that stuff that you can do at home, telemed and Etsy and all these things. But, you know, they were talking about their dividends and what what happens if companies start cutting dividends? What happens if they can't um, pay uh, the yield? Um because they just, for whatever exogenous reason, they need the money to do other things. But the companies that you mentioned, these these corporations, these investment-grade corporations, which are yielding very low levels right now, their balance sheets are still pretty good. I mean, I don't know how long it will take for balance sheets to turn. Um, but overall, these companies are in pretty good shape. They have cash. They, you know... They have cash flow or have had cash flow. And if that were the case, that you were really worried about the deterioration of these balance sheets, that they did not have enough cash or cash flow to tide them over, that they were really hard up to pay their dividends or to keep the lights on, the market would be down a lot more from now, and it still could be. I believe that the you know the level of the correction at this point is in the mid-teens. But a bear market, I believe, is defined by more than 20%? Yes. But 
I mean, I don't even know in today's terms what more than 20% looks like because of there's so many other factors at hand. I'm wondering, Robin, and, I, and again, this is just, you know, me putting on my thinking cap. If we have a correction of, of you know, a, subs, a, a sustained correction of 20% over a long period of time, um, how does that flow through to the economy? How quickly? Well, we did have the market tank 57% between 2008 and 2009, the low again being of March of 2009. And it took- And a lot of people got laid off. Yeah, but we, it took four years. I mean, if you looked at that as a generational opportunity from the cold-eyed investor perspective, when people were absolutely freaking out and you had the US market back at 1996 levels in inflation-adjusted terms, it hadn't done anything in, in even longer than that. Um, we haven't seen anything, and again, I'm not trying to be cute, we haven't seen anything resembling that kind of capitulation or arms in the air like- I don't even know what's going on. You and I, in our case, our magazine was <laughs> quickly, you know, racking up losses of sixty million and was put for sale, and and many of us got laid off. And that me, no, yeah, nothing has approached that so far. No, um, I'm again. I guess you know this is all a lot of it is speculation. But I'm for me, I'm not as worried about stock prices as I am about companies and the people and the 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 human capital and what the impact is. You know, markets go up and down, but if companies can't keep their lights on, as you said, or, you know, can't continue to pay their salaries, that's a problem. You know, looking at the CBOE volatility index, the VIX, which is the most quoted uh, uh, read of volatility, how wild things are on on Wall Street, it has had an absolutely (laughs) chaotic uh, late February, early March. This is something that the reading, you know, the lower it is, the, the more serene Wall Street conditions are. It was at 11 in the summer of uh, 2019. It is now above, uh, it's in the mid-40s. And it shoots up every day, whether stock prices go up or down. It's not normal to see a market go up 1,000 points and then go down 1,000 points and go up 1,000 points. That kind of, um, you know, th- th- that is huge volatility. That stomach churning, it makes it very hard to plan. It seems like... You don't know what the indication is for it's all safe out there. And and at the same time, you have airlines making parallel statements. You have cruise ships that are being waylaid in places. And um, volatility itself, I think, is scaring people off. Absolutely. And I think for the last really big bout of volatility that we had, the last couple of big bouts, and people were really worried. It was blaming it on big institutions, big institutional investors who were, you know, throwing money and pulling it in and out of the market. I don't I don't think I'm not hearing people blaming it on institutions right now, are you? I think it's retail investors are really scared. Yeah. Mom and pop. My parents. Because the headlines are so huge and at the same time you're trying to live your life, you're trying to hear back of reports, be it a synagogue in Westchester or you know, in my case relatives in Iran. I mean, this is a truly, you know, if it's a, if it's on the brink of pandemic, we haven't seen a true, true pandemic maybe since the, the 1920s that took down the world economy this way. I don't want to be all doom and gloom. Where are the bright spots? What do you think if, if you had well, to say? Well, there are some bright spots. And again, I don't know how many people have been able to partake in this, but the Wall Street Journal is also reporting that mortgage rates hit a record low, but yep. coronavirus may deter buyers. So who's in a mood right now that this is Refinance. You, you should re- absolutely you be can, refinancing. You can I mean, refinance. that's something you can do. You can refinance. You can save some money and free up a little more cash for yourself. Um, do it if you haven't done it already. But not long uh, ago, people were in bidding wars for prices. There were shortages for 
you know, builders and, and contractors and the like, does this take maybe in a good way? I think maybe the good news, and again, this sounds mercenary. You see oil prices plummeting. You see commodity prices plumbing. This is something in a, in a correction that reprices things, that reprices risks, that gives people a chance to say that everything should not be priced for perfection because indeed things can and do fall apart. And I don't, and and so yes, there is a silver lining in that it, it, the resetting, the reset, uh, puts it at a, a much more rational level, if 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 there's ration to be had, um, certainly in terms of housing and and where prices have gone. But we here in New York, by the way, we've already felt you know housing has slowed down at least in terms of prices. Things are not moving. We have an over oversupply of condominiums on on the island of Manhattan and and surrounding environments right now. Lauren, how do you look at um, uh, uh, readouts of safety in this environment? Again, we you know there there are people that again in in the kind of the Iranian relative contrarian index, there are people that would be telling you in an environment like this to hoard. You have to get all those Iranian relatives on a show one day, Robin. Oh, that would be fantastic. <laughs> and know, invite me and serve the rice, the, the cherry true. rice. It's true. So they're telling you about gold. They're telling you about real estate. In an environment like this, you want to be levered to real estate or to – there are other people out there, purists on the streets, that I want to be buying things like Clorox or or uh, PepsiCo or Staples. Etsy. And... Kramer loves Etsy because it's, you know, order for people who do stuff from home. Or even a, a Domino's, which has had an incredible run uh, – I think since it's IPO in the mid-aughts, that's getting slammed too. And you would think that everybody would be all over themselves ordering pizza in if they're not going out. Uh, but there are real questions that says, you know, the Financial Times reports that Domino's UK stockpiles ingredients in face of coronavirus. And like you said about Kroger, uh, at some point you, you, you eat down the supplies that you have and you're at the right. mercy of the supply chain. So where's the safety? Is that the question? I don't know if there's safety. What was the safety in 2008 and 2009? Um, it seems like uh, the, the treasuries, I, I, I don't know at what point that reflects a true uh, a fear of things falling apart. I mean, again, it's below 1% over 10 years. If I'm uh, giving the government, if I'm giving Uncle Sam my money right now, I am content to take 0.9% a year. On that now, who can look into ten years hence? I mean, look at the world ten years ago. Look at people buying thirty-year debt or longer debt than that. That's that. That's the kind of the crazy thing for me is, who in the world has that kind of visibility to say, you know, I'm okay getting nothing because I just want return of my capital, not Risk return takers. on my capital. So, you know, the Warren Buffets of the world who are willing to say this is what I'm going to buy now, publicly or or privately. But you know, if you think that real estate's a good deal, buy it. Uh, I just had. Uh, a young man who has some, a little cash, and he was saying, I, "I really want to buy Apple. Should I? What should I do?" And or but I don't have enough money to buy. He wanted to buy Berkshire Hathaway, but he didn't have enough money for one share. And I, it was it, he actually said he was going to open up a Robinhood account. And if anyone knows about Robinhood this week, their platform shut down. So um, I don't know the answer, Robin. I would say buy with conviction. Buy the things you like. Like Peter Lynch said, by the things you know, by the things you love. That's you're the best. Your research is is, is your gut. It's what you know. Lauren Young, money editor of Reuters. I'd like to know what what relatives are asking you, what friends are asking you, what colleagues at Reuters and in the in the personal finance firm that you occupy. Everybody, Lauren Young is like the LinkedIn router of of connections in personal finance. She knows everybody in New York. You go to the Financial Follies. Um, 
it's incredible, even in Times Square, how many times she gets stopped. She has I what, actually bumped into thousand Twitter followers. Stop. Why don't you give me some? I just bumped into one of our, our friends and uh, a very well-known personal finance expert, and I gave him personal finance advice last night about uh, tuition. But um, what are people asking me? Is it a good time to buy real estate? Uh, should I be investing in the market and how? And I am a firm believer, and it's so boring but true, that you know, dollar cost averaging saves the day. I never invest a lump sum at any given time. Explain dollar cost averaging for our listeners. So putting money in, in, in increments, and usually monthly is how I do it. But you know, I have money going into mutual funds every single month, a fixed amount. I have money coming out of my paycheck every single month that's going into um, my retirement fund. I have money going into different uh, 529 for my son, which is a college savings account every month. So, and I am, and we just did a story actually, Robin, about target date funds mm -hmm. and what, um, because they're allocate, basically asset allocation funds for people to plan for retirement and what you should do right now. And the bottom line is, is that they're doing the work for you. So if you're nearing retirement, they've already pulled a lot of money. So a target sense. date fund would be like so-and-so fund or index company. Like if I'm 30 years from retirement, they'd say, okay, Robin Farzad, you want to buy the uh, Fidelity retirement 20, company's 2040 fund. 2040 yeah. or 2050 fund that they do it for you. Yes. Um, are we seeing vindication in robo-advisors right now? The ones that take are supposed to take uh, human instinct and uh, you know human bad habits out of this? Well, if you're – the vindication is, yes, the bad habit is that's what dollar cost averaging is, is that you put the money in whether it's up or it's down. But it's very hard for some people to do that. They want to do something. And again, I've, I feel like I'm a broken record here, but – I'm not looking at my accounts, people, and I would advise that you don't need to look at your accounts either. I did look right when the market was at its highest, Robin, and I was doing so well. I was so proud of myself. And now I'm just not looking. And I didn't do that in 2008 to 2009. I did not open up a statement. Mm. I didn't. I can't. I mean, I just that's how I am. That's how I roll. If you are losing sleep at night. Talk to a therapist, please. You might you might need a little help. I mean, th th these are the kind of things, you know, there's a lot to worry about. But you can't – there's nothing you can do. People – we know – behavioral finance tells us this, that people, when they are motivated by fear, they make mistakes. They make money mistakes. It's, it's habitual. It happens all the time. And you always sell at the worst time. Mm. You need somebody to help you do that. Now, it seems like a distant memory now, but Super Tuesday, there was until recently this this uh, palpable fear on Wall Street, On you know, this on the day that Elizabeth Warren dropped out of the race. It's now seemingly a two-man race uh, for the Democratic nomination between Bernie Sanders and, and Joe Biden. And as recently as 10 days ago, I think before South Carolina, people were terrified that Biden or the moderate lane had no chance of doing this. Right. No acceleration. That, that Bernie was just going to march it into to Milwaukee and take it. And there was... There was a taste of fear and loathing on Wall Street. And New York Magazine came out with, uh, you know, the covers of Mike Bloomberg that that ended up in everybody's mailboxes this week. And he's already pulled out of the race. Um, buyer's market or whatever it was. So I, I, I'm really interested and I'm glad that you uh, pivoted the conversation. I'm so interested and I actually kind of feel bad for whoever is next president because they're going to inherit a mess of an economy. <laughs> I mean, this is not going to go away, and it's going to take some time to to figure it all out. I, I'm not sure who the winner is and who the loser is, Democrat or Republican, whoever takes the White House next time, honestly. Why are you so sure that they're going to inherit a mess of an economy? Again, the I, economy itself right now is 
these these stats are going to lag. We're, we're, we're going to see companies with layoffs and the like. You're going to see the Federal Reserve is supposed to be independent from the White House. I think we're headed for a recession, Robin, and recessions don't end quickly. You know, the next president will have to deal with stimulation and and job loss and all of these things. Again, it it takes time to figure these things out. So, and also the policies. I mean, just I I don't know how you feel about tax cuts and whatever, but um, I think if if, if there's a change in leadership, um, they're going to relook look at taxes and and rethink. Um, tax code in the U.S. and maybe giving people, for example, who buy homes, uh, being able to use mortgage interest as a deduction and, and stuff like that. But there's, I think it's just going to be an unwinding if it if if we have a change in leadership and if it's more of the same. I think that the the America first mentality is just not going to play out into a broader economic expansion based on everything that's going on now. Wow. Uh, Lauren, in the uh, 10 or 12 minutes or so that we have you, um, I'd love to think back at kind of all the different things that have changed. You know, when you and I looking back at 20 years of markets, think about when we started together. We worked for a monthly personal finance magazine. That idea seems like risible right now, right? <laughs> Money magazine doesn't exist anymore. Smart Money didn't. To think that people used to go in the grocery aisle and pick up something and look at, um, I, you know, I remember being in a bookstore in the in the basement of the Citicorp building uh, at Christmas time, getting one of these year-end investing outlook books. Oh, and, and they were so fat, right? They were they so were really fat big. and the advertising the was so great and, 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 and everybody was excited because there were going to be these inflow checks in January and you were going to fund your Roth IRA and your 401k. Now it seems like there's, I, I I I can't remember a time. It used to be that we paid attention to individual companies. I mean, something's going on right now. It's Xerox is going hostile out of HP. That would have been a huge headline back in the day. Uh, no one is talking about that now. Everything is indexed. The biggest beneficiary of this is Vanguard, the biggest you know indexing company on the planet. What does it have? Five trillion in assets. Uh, people are not as active in, in following portfolios as they are anymore. They're more likely to kind of set it and forget it. Yes, but I'll tell you this, Robin, and I think maybe just to pivot and make it a little bit cheerier, um, the for all intents and purposes, you want to call it millennial generation, they are putting so much more effort into the their, the companies they work for, demanding things from them, demanding sustainable practices, demanding better hiring policies, you know, uh, looking at more diversity. And so it's kind of a revolution from within rather than within their investing portfolio, but it's in the human capital aspect of their life. And that part is really interesting because it's a transformation. I mean, people may, our generation and the generation before us may have wanted these things, but we have a generation of people who are asking for these things very, very loudly. And if they don't get what they want, they're out. Um, so I think there's been a transformation in a very different way of companies uh, that isn't led by shareholders per se, but by the by stakeholders. I hate I hate all of those terms, but I use them. Well, to that end, what do you make? Is it is it overrated that young people who seem to overwhelmingly prefer uh, Bernie Sanders and some of the policies of Medicare for all or or, or forgiving college debt? I was going to say it's college debt. Yeah. Yeah, um, that 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 is something that even if this doesn't work out in in 2020, that this worm is going to turn. I mean, these people who came of age, in and went into the workforce in 2008, 2009, who've not caught up, who've not had capital formation, who've had college debt kind of saddling them down, is it only a matter of time? 
kind of when they rest back the tax code. I, I that's what I was inferring a little bit earlier. I'm I'm wondering about that, and and, and how will there be a whole rethink of what um, what the society looks like and what we want from society and what society gives us? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if we're you know headed for socialism or whatever, but. It's definitely part of the conversation in a way that it wasn't 20 years ago. So you asked me what was different. And clearly we all know this, but the, just the digital aspect of what, of who we are and how we live our lives, um, good and bad, uh, you know, that's what made every, all the magazines that we work for obsolete and changed everything. Because why would you want to get a magazine to tell you about uh, – just to bring up GE stock because Jack Welsh passed away recently. But when you can see it in real time on your phone, it just doesn't make sense anymore. But there's still room for sto- good storytelling. And and incidentally, Robin, it's it's podcasting. It's it's the radio where a lot of stories are being told today, which is funny because it's you know new and old at the same time. It existed 20 years ago, but it's got a real resurgence. Lauren, tell me what you're working on now. Today, right now, um, I just edited a story. Uh, the Lipper Awards, which is so funny because I've been covering mutual funds for so long, are um, this week in New York City where um, Lipper recognizes the best fund managers and what they're up to. And the story is about how uh, some of these star managers are preparing their portfolios for the coronavirus. Um, the story will be very out of date, hopefully, in like three months from now. But I think it's something people want to read now from smart money managers. By the way, um, you know, back in the day, people could name fund managers. There were stars. There were people that they revered. You're not going to know the names of any of these people, Robin. Is that a good thing? Is that a, I mean, you're buying a you're buying an ultra low cost basket of passively managed companies. No, these are actually active fund managers, but even still for the most part. But um it's just the it's it's changed. Uh there's much more anon, anonymous anonymity on of how money is managed today. You know, just the star fund manager is very passe. And what about Wall Street itself, the traditional you know, we just had this headline recently. It was I, – I never would have expected of all the ways E-Trade would have gone out. I know. That Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Stanley would have I bought know. the discount broker Absolutely. E-Trade. And, we're, and E-Trade has been one of these things that's been in play for so long. I've done – chaired all these conferences for years of people who work in digital financial services. And it would always be a topic of what's going to happen to E-Trade. It is a shocking, shocking development. I'm kind of – I think it's ballsy and I think it's a great move. Um it, interesting that a very white shoe money management, wealth management firm and investment bank would want, you know, kind of a f- for every every investor kind of um, asset. So it, amazing story. Great so story. What, are, what are these people now? I, I, I want to know in this entire shift to, to passive investing, who exactly is sending money to a Morgan Stanley type broker? What is what is that relationship? I mean, I am talking to brokers now. They're they're getting called left oh, and right about this. Rich people. I mean, there will always be rich people, <laughs> and there are you know we're just entering bonus season now. I uh, saw some traffic today with a uh, high high net worth. Um, advisor about mortgage rates and whether or not the person should be refinancing their mortgage and what they should be doing with their money and, you know, where the sweep account. And so, um, you know, there are, we know that there's a disparity, Robin, here in, 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 in the U.S., but also globally mm. of rich versus poor. And at the end of the day, wealthy people, they might be smart and they may have made their money, but they need help managing it. And they, and, Smart people know that, uh, maybe even some stupid ones. But, um, you know, people, they don't they don't have the time. They don't have the resources to figure out what they should be doing with their money. And that's where 
um, wealth management firms. That's that that's how they. The rationale, the, the reason for them existing is for there are a lot of rich people in this world who need help. Lauren, I have a wild card for you. In, Tell um, me. I'm sure you've been reading a lot about it. Goldman Sachs, a uh, company when I was there as a you know greenhorn uh, uh, brokerage <laughs> analyst at the turn of the century, there was a lot of debate in 98, 99 over whether or not they should go public at all, that this was oh, the brass oh. ring partnership. It was, uh, you know, it, it, it was conservative. They always had the quote, we're long-term greedy, right? And and not by not being a publicly traded company, we can do things and, and make prudent decisions with our partner's capital. And on top of that, a partnership that is the most coveted brass ring on Wall Street. Um, you know, more than 20 years into this experience, the company's valuation from a book valuation has really plummeted. It's kind of hit a funk after its misadventures during 2008 and 2009 in subprime. Um, it, it likes to think of itself as somebody that caters to the ultra-high net worth, but at the same time, it also has a bank, mm-hmm. Marcus, and it's willing to you know, collaborate with, with um, Apple on a, on a credit card or the Apple card. How do you look at this company? It, it used to be maybe the most followed company on Wall Street, and it's definitely hit a rut right definitely now. Definitely lost its luster, and I was thinking about it, and, and full disclosure, and full disclosure, I have a family member who was a pre-IPO car- partner, and the people who were in that cohort did very well for themselves and have gone on to form capital elsewhere and do great things. So if you kind of look at the ancillary uh, effect of that, but Goldman itself, it's interesting that you bring it up because especially since Morgan Stanley masterminded this deal with E-Trade recently, it does feel very like in play that something's got to give, something has to happen. It's, it can't continue the the same way it has. And I don't know, and I don't know enough about the company. I mean, obviously I know about the leadership and whatnot, but I don't know what's holding it back. And what about, you know, we don't hear about Merrill Lynch because it was subsumed into Bank Bank of of America. America. Is that working out for them? You used to hear about the thundering herd. When things like this would happen, everybody would talk about the Merrill Lynch top 10 held stocks in America. And Merrill Lynch people would be on CNBC talking about this. I'm not impressed that that this is uh, such a huge priority at Bank of America. Well, yeah. Yes and no. I mean, wealth management is certainly a priority for the business. There's no question about that. How they've repackaged it is very different. Um, it, I Just the whole landscape, Robin, has changed so much in the wealth management space. And the, the irony, and we all know this, is that people need help. People, as I've said before, are their own worst enemies. Um, how it's flowing through the bottom line is that, you know, the wealth management business, the reason why people want that business is because of the fee. Uh, income is steady. It's not going to be through the roof in the way that a couple of big investment banking deals can can shift things. But there is a value in having steady income, um, how people manage it, how they monetize it, uh, unlock unlock the power of that is, is you know, still no one's they figured it out to some degree, but nobody's figured out how to really rev it up and make it to something else. Um, but I don't think those companies are going away. I really don't. Uh, do you do you feel like that there's enough do-it-yourself willpower out there that people would go without having somebody to advise them and, and manage their money? I want to hear from brokers and from everybody else is what's happening on a week like this after a prolonged period of, of going it alone, of breaking up with your broker, of sending the money to Vanguard. Are you really? Proving, I love. Ha- I have a financial advisor. I love having. Her are right you now, really proving say. your metal in this environment? Are you really talking the person off the cliff? Are you really? Uh, you know, um, 
you're you're paying somebody something, or it's a hundred basis points a year, or hundred and fifty basis points. I think it's worth it. I mean, I'm on the record as saying it's worth it because otherwise people do dumb stuff. But I don't. Maybe you feel differently. I don't think you should be paying, you know, crazy uh, amounts for sure. I mean, you should be conscious of what you're paying your financial advisor, and certainly transactionally, when stuff is happening, the commissions and whatnot, you have to be really careful because um, you can rack, rack up some significant costs. But I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it to have somebody holding your hand. I would ha I would hold your hand right now if you were here with me, Robin, and not in Virginia. And I would hold your hand without Purell like I always have. <laughs> we're not allowed to. We have to wave now. Yeah. And you're, you Jazz do that, hands. That, that, what is that little shuffle thing where you tap your heels like kid in play? Uh, <laughs> I, I do I, – you know, in, in closing, um, just quickly – I worry about the unintended consequences of emergency interest rate policy this long, that it's going to have to swell a bubble, that something that the Fed and the government's going to have to come in and belatedly fight. There's going to be a bill to pay for this, and it's going to be due in a few years, and I worry that it's going to be another shock or another externality. That's what I'm telling you for whoever gets the, is president next, whichever party takes the White House. There, there, there's going to be... I don't want to say hell to pay, but there's going to be something to pay. There's there is they somebody is going to be left with an empty bag, and I don't know who that's going to be and how they're going to find their way out of it. But it is scary. Um, I you know shed a tear for the saver. Shed a tear for the person who just wanted to. You know, my dad took me to American Savings and Loan when I was a little kid, and you would get you know fifteen percent on a CD and a toaster, and you just have not for the better part of twenty years been able to comfortably save money. Or toast. Or toast. So is that is that just more collateral damage in this? The saver who's been hoping for rates to creep back up is going to get obliterated again and pushed back into risk. I think people know that rates – I mean, I, rates have been so low for so long. I just – who are those people, Robin? Where are they that have been waiting for rates to go up? I, I'm, we've been saying rates are going up for so long. It's like – I. I don't know. And isn't that a danger and that this this bull market, this this obsession with bonds has been going on now since the early 80s. That's approaching 40 years. There's no institutional memory. There's nobody to say that, look, this can shoot back. You and I haven't even mentioned the word inflation. No, I said deflation, which was close to inflation. Yeah, because there is no inflation right now. That's why. But yes, I mean, inflation can be your friend. It can be helpful when managed well, but, you know, by a usually by a central bank that knows what they're doing. But are you are you implying that the Fed doesn't know what it's doing or are they just being too reactionary? Well, take me back to 2007. Look at the minutes. Did the Fed know what it was doing ahead of this enormous real estate and Wall Street collapse? I, I, I don't think that they're, you know. Well, they were trying to figure out a solution quickly, for sure. And they were talking to every head of every major investment bank and all the smart people um, and trying to get people in a room to get a sense of what well, was Well, this on. is not just up to the Fed, you know, the New York Fed and our monetary and fiscal policymakers at this time. This is – this has to be coordination between the WHO, the CDC, various uh, countries that do and don't get along. And, you know, we all have our fingers crossed. Fingers coated in, in Purell if you can get exactly. your wits Exactly. I was going to say that, yes. Lauren Young, money editor of Reuters, thank you so much. I know you've been absolutely slammed. You are always welcome on the show. I hope that my comments were not too sanitizing, and I appreciate your time. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to engineer Neil Rauch at NPR New York. This show airs on NPR member station VPM News 88.9 and on Apple Podcasts at link fullderadio.com. I'm Robin Farzad. Have a sandwich. Wash your hands. Take it easy. Talk to you next week. Bye.